You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Douglas Winton. So on today's podcast, we are honored to have Colonel Doug Winton. Colonel Winton serves as the Chair of the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations at the U.S. Army War College. And absolutely most applicable to this podcast and our conversations, he recently or relatively recently completed a PhD with a focus on urban warfare. Sir, welcome to the podcast. I guess just start off with a little bit about your background, what you're doing at the War College, and how you came to start a PhD on urban warfare. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate that. It is a privilege to be here. So I am an artillery officer in the United States Army. I've been doing that for almost 29 years now. First 20 of those in very traditional field artillery jobs was with a 105 millimeter howitzers in the 101st MLRS with 5th Corps artillery, uh, 155 Paladins and 3ID, and then again, uh, Battalion Command at Fort Sill. Uh, sort of a one little diversion in there as I taught economics at West Point for over a couple of years. But uh, after having done that, those normal artillery jobs, I came to the War College as a student. And while I was here, I got selected to join the faculty in their War College professor program. And they gave me two years to go work on a PhD, which I did at Johns Hopkins. Got a PhD in international relations in the strategic studies department at the School of Advanced International Studies. And my urban warfare specialty was really just in my dissertation. Um, No unique coursework on urban planning or anything like that. But But the dissertation definitely examines urban combat and the role of technology in urban combat. Awesome. I don't want to waste any time. We're going to talk a lot about your research and then maybe apply it to some current operations going on or current thoughts towards the U.S. military's approach to urban operations, which is all like winner, winner, chicken dinner for me. But let's start off with what was your research question that you attacked? Yeah, so it started with my advisor just telling me that the real interesting question about urban operations was whether or not urban combat is a great equalizer. I I was interested in urban operations as a general topic of strategic studies. It had a lot of salience at the time as people were talking about megacities and the trends of urbanization globally. Uh, My own experiences in Fallujah and Ramadi and Baghdad confirmed for me that this was a unique problem that militaries had to be able to to deal with. And my personal experience told me that success in urban combat was mostly about a unit's ability to adapt. I think it's incredibly hard to train for urban combat. And my gut told me that if you were going to be successful fighting in a city, then the qualities that allowed a unit to adapt quickly uh, were the qualities that were going to be most salient in predicting urban combat success. But as I was you know, trying to d- develop the research on that, wanting to use contemporary cases, I couldn't parse out how units were adapting because they were fighting in cities, vice how they were adapting because they were having to deal with insurgent forces that were fighting with new tactics and new ways that they hadn't prepared for. I think adaptability is key for me, um, as it always comes up, whether it's a major conference or in my conversations with military personnel, is, is our design principle of adaptability. There is scenarios that drive our force design which gives us the ability to adapt. But we have designed for a specific enemy in, a, in, in certain scenarios and big environments. That is the starting point. So usually when I have a conversation about adaptability, I say, yes, and history will show that's one of our greatest strengths is you know, leader development and adaptability. But when you have that as a principle, you are drawing a line on the sand. On, okay, at that moment against that enemy in that terrain, you are starting from this starting point and you must adapt from it. And the argument is, is that the right starting point in which to adapt from? Would, would you say that's a good characterization of the adaptability theory? 
Yeah, I think that's a reasonable frame, right? I think this is a really hard problem for military strategists to work their heads through, right? So we're, we're always going to have limited resources, right? We're, I can't imagine us being able to build single-purpose, single-role forces that says, hey, this these are the units that only do cities. These are the units that only fight on open terrain. These are the units that only fight insurgencies. I mean, there's definitely some, some desire to do some of that, right? That's part of the whole genesis of getting security force assistance brigades and, and where we make those trade-offs between having uniquely capable force structure versus more general purpose force structure. It's an enormously challenging strategic question about how to build military capability and then employ that military capability. And I don't know of the right the right framework that guarantees you get the answer to that question correct. In general, I tend to fall down on the side of uh, wanting more general purpose forces that have baked into them the thought that they're going to have to adapt. I think that's a more reasoned approach to the problem. But I understand the argument that there are some military challenges that are so unique and require such highly specialized equipment or training that you need specialized forces to be able to accomplish them. For sure. And and what I usually go back to is that while we say general purpose military forces, there are very specific defense planning scenarios in which drive the design of land forces, especially the U.S. Army. So we have in our mind agreed upon, debated, war game scenarios that say, okay, that's the most likely worst case fights that we're going to prepare for and then design our military against that. The argument I've had is should those be included in that list of most likely scenarios being a major urban fight? Yeah, so I think so, right? I think we can write all of the doctrine that we want that says we're going to isolate and bypass cities. But the reality is that militaries have to fight in cities. There's a whole host of reasons that militaries find themselves having to fight in cities. And it is inconceivable to me that we would develop a force in which we could look ourselves in the mirror with any sort of integrity and say, yeah, we're not going to need this force to fight in a city. We might say, hey, we don't want this force optimized for fighting in a city. That's a legitimate choice for us to make. But to say that uh, we're designing a force because we know it will never have to fight in a city, that seems ludicrous to me. Yeah, so it's funny you used to use the words optimize since that it was General Milley's quote that any of us urban warfare kind of advocates throw out a lot where he said that the military of the future must optimize, train, and equip for dense urban combat. Yeah, so there, there's a really legitimate argument to be made about that, right? So I think there is – I don't believe that we will fight in cities just because cities exist, So there's, I'm hesitant to say, because the world is urbanizing, therefore we can conclude that we will see increased instances of urban combat. But having looked back historically, as much as militaries loathe fighting in cities, and almost every professional military does, they have to do it because the political objectives demand it, because their adversary chooses to hole up inside the city, because there are key resources or transportation networks or infrastructure or or any other host of reasons that compels us to have to go into the city in order to achieve our campaign objectives and the ultimate political objectives that we're fighting for. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we started this podcast series and our project at the Modern War Institute is because there are these two major camps, despite what some view as common sense, there are major camps within the military, not that it's just the U.S. Army that says we should not optimize that. I know megacities, I was actually part of that 2014 megacities research project, and that's usually thrown out by the camp who is in opposition of optimizing, who says, let's be careful, a megacity by population size would eat a army, you know, all of the army as a snack. 
Fair enough. But we don't have to have as our objective controlling the entire city to find ourselves fighting in that city. So there's plenty of historic examples of militaries fighting in cities without having as an objective controlling the city at the end of the operation. I mean, the best example of that is the Israelis fighting in Gaza. They have no intention of controlling the city of Gaza when they're done with their operation. But that doesn't mean they don't have to go into the dense urban terrain to achieve their campaign objectives and their political objectives. As much as the Israeli army would prefer not to fight in a city, and they clearly would prefer to figure out how to achieve their objectives without having to go into the city. But oftentimes that option is just not available to them. Right. And that's what I usually, so I usually say that the whole numerical opposition is that's just not how force planning works i mean you don't plan the force you need to accomplish your mission against the size of the population a lot of times it's against it's it's a whole very large bit of analysis but what is the mission and i think and that goes back to those defense planning scenarios i think we've as a kind of as a strategic outlook failed to articulate the possible political objectives that can arise in the near future that would require U.S. combat forces to be fighting in cities. Yeah, I think that's one of the beauties of using history as the database of our profession. History shows us lots of compelling examples. I'll take Seoul at the beginning of the Korean War. MacArthur planned Operation Chromite the way that he did because it was incredibly important to him to put the South Korean leadership back in their capital. He couldn't accomplish his political objective any other way. So getting into the city and securing Seoul was essential to the way he planned the operation. Very different than, I'm going to pick out Aachen now from the European theater in World War II, where the reason the commanders were fighting in Aachen is because the Germans had committed to leaving a remnant in the city that ended up in the U.S. rear. And it threatened the U.S. advance and created a propaganda tool for the German leadership that they were going to be able to hold on and that the U.S. objective of unconditional surrender was unrealistic. So the commanders had to go into Aachen and root out the force that was determined there. Very differently than the decision to go fight in Brest a couple of months before Aachen. That was a decision based upon the commander needing access to a port, stopping the German Navy from using that port to disrupt Allied shipping coming from the United States, but also to open up that port before bad weather came in to allow the flow of supplies to allow the the campaign to continue to the east. So anyway, three different battles, each fought for very different objectives and reasons, but the military commander, though he didn't necessarily want to, had to commit combat power to fight in the city. And so I think those are just three examples that we can use to imagine in future campaigns, some reasons that our commanders will find themselves having to commit combat power into the city, even though they wish they could achieve their objectives some other way. Yeah, I I don't have to tell you, and clearly you're in the camp of being able to defeat arguments against this by using history as a tool, despite the typical use and abuse of history and cherry picking historical examples to either show a need to emphasize or not urban combat. So I think that's a good question, though. When I go to present on urban combat, sometimes there is a loss in the communication based on just different thoughts in people's minds of the type of combat we're talking about. Since urban combat could be the spectrum of intensity from everything from stability operations to precision guided raids such as the killing Osama bin Laden inside of a city to a completely non-permissive environment enemy besieged within a city how did you kind of narrow yours down to begin your research yeah that was a really important decision that i had to make to say this argument about the role of technology in urban combat this idea that urban combat is a great equalizer that strips away technological advantage if that was the question that i wanted to explore uh, then i had to make sure i i was defining 
the cases that could really address that issue. And so for me, in the research that I did, urban combat has to be of a duration and intensity that it is something we would refer to as a battle or a campaign. Meaning, so I'll just take, for example, the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. Absolutely military power, absolutely happened in an urban environment. For me, that's not a, a case that I examined in my dissertation because it was too brief to bring about the equalizing effect. I think that the battle in Mogadishu, as illustrative as that battle can be, it was too brief for us to fully see the equalizing effect take place. But likewise, I also don't look at humanitarian operations or non-combatant evacuation operations that have sufficient time, but nobody's making the, the argument about this equalizing effect happening in humanitarian operations, right? It's clearly something that is, we imagine happening when two military forces, whether regular or irregular, are choosing to use violence to achieve their objectives, and they're doing that in a city. Okay. So when you say urban combat, duration, intensity, objectives, urban combat as a great equalizer of a technologically superior force against a inferior force? Is that, that what you were saying? Absolutely. That was that was the the research question that I was trying to answer. If we have a, a superior force that's reliant on technological capabilities as its source of asymmetric advantage, can it employ those capabilities effectively even when it's fighting in a city? Or does the city in some way strip away those technological capabilities? Which there's been a lot of literature especially in the 1990s and into the turn of the century that talked about how Americans would not be able to fight well in cities because we would find that our precision firepower didn't work the way that we wanted to, that the three-dimensional infrastructure, the buildings would strip away our communications capabilities and we wouldn't be able to communicate once we were in the city and that the enemy would have too many places to hide. So our ISR advantages would not offer us advantages because we wouldn't be able to see the enemy hidden away in all of the burrows and holes and subterranean structures that naturally exist in a city. So attacking superior force against a defending inferior force, not necessarily the fact that it would degrade the attacker's capabilities, but the question was equalize the capabilities. That's right. If you read this idea that urban combat is a great equalizer, you typically hear people talking about how despite all the technological capability that we have, when it comes right down to it, urban combat is essentially a mono mono fight that uh, we are forced to deal with an irregular, ill-equipped adversary in a very equal way. My rifle, vice your rifle. My hand grenade, vice your hand grenade. And that it forces us into that kind of a fight. All right, so when you say technology, so I'm clear, um, what do you mean by a superior force technologically advanced? It's a super question, and it was something I really struggled with in the dissertation. It certainly has a firepower aspect to it, uh, the ability to bring in reliable, precise, high-volume firepower. There's a communication aspect of it, the ability to coordinate a very decentralized and dispersed formation across a wide area. Uh, And I think there's also an intelligence aspect of it, being able to find the adversary and understand the adversary's capabilities and intentions. Okay. No, that's pretty pretty clear to me. Okay, so you know, I know in the beginning of your research, you had to basically look at what are the commonly held theories, both good and bad, about urban combat. This is a, a tough question to do in a short podcast, but could you give me a couple comments about some of these commonly held beliefs, or at least the evolution of urban combat that leads you up to today and that can help you eliminate cases that we're not talking about, the cases we are talking about? 
I guess the first thing I would want to say about that is, as I looked at the history of urban combat, and I looked at you know very briefly a number of battles from World War II up into the contemporary area. The thing that strikes me the most, which is not shocking to any historian, and, and I'm not a historian, but any historian understands this idea that context matters. And that was a recurring theme that came from each battle. Understanding why the force is fighting in the city, what objectives they're fighting for, what else is going on around that battle or campaign significantly shapes the way the battle or campaign is fought and what the outcome is. And so as I look at the broad history of urban combat, my number one takeaway is context matters. You have to examine the unique context of that battle or campaign. And I think the other thing that I just really came away with was this, this sense that the U.S. commitment in previous doctrine to be able to isolate or bypass cities was foolhardy. Um, that there's just not good historic evidence that isolating and bypassing cities is a meaningful way to achieve campaign objectives. Right. I'd almost needed a whole another podcast to dig into that doctrine question. As I look at the operation, especially the kind of operation we're talking about, a large urban area, heavily defended, whether it's a irregular force or regular force, and then the attacking operation to either unliberate that city, eliminate the enemy that's in your rear, whether we have the appropriate doctrine in our you know books today versus an older question. But let me ask this question, since all that kind of drove you to the, what were the specific urban combat cases that you looked at for your research? Yeah, so I'm trying to answer this question about the role of the urban terrain and the effect that it has on technological capability. So I wanted to examine cases that were relatively contemporary in which a technologically superior force was fighting a technologically inferior force. And what I settled on is how the Russians fought in Grozny. And there, I used two cases of that in 95 and again in 1999. How the United States fought in Fallujah, and I used two distinct cases there, the April 2004 and then the November 2004. And then my third pair of cases was the Israelis fighting in Gaza. And for that, I chose... Operation Cast Lead in 2009 and Operation Protective Edge in 2014. Because of all the times the Israelis have fought in Gaza, those had the most significant ground component, which admittedly is what I'm most interested in. But I deliberately picked these pairs of cases because if you have essentially the same forces fighting over essentially the same city twice and you get different outcomes, something is explaining the outcome more than the urban terrain itself. So I think by using these pairs of cases, I'm able to better isolate what the true impact of the urban terrain is. Yeah, interesting. So six case studies. Did you have to address the issues of basically comparing different militaries, like such as the Americans versus the Russians? That caused problem in your case study analysis if one may be accused of not following the armed, you know, the law of armed conflict in terms of protecting civilians, collateral damage, use of flamethrowers, things like that. Did you run into that issue? Well, it just jumps right out at you, right? If you examine those cases, there's no question that the Russians are not concerned about adhering to the law of armed conflict in the Geneva Conventions when they're fighting in Grozny. There's no evidence that that is in their thought process at all in their approach. And there is incredibly deep, compelling evidence that it is at the forefront of the minds of the Americans and the Israelis when they're fighting. I mean, despite all the, the propaganda that Arab media had in April of 2004, the historic record is very clear that uh, the Marines fighting in Fallujah in April of 2004 were very consciously working to fight in accordance with the law of armed conflict in the Geneva Conventions. They were challenged to do so based upon the way the enemy presented itself. Yet, yeah, there's no question that that difference arises, and that difference contributes to the different outcomes that you get and the approach that the armies take. Back to my point of context matters, you cannot find 
any two cases of urban combat that are identical. But there are sufficient similarities that you can draw meaningful conclusions, in my view, by looking at those six cases. This is probably the biggest question I have based on just struggling with this question. In looking at whether urban combat is an equalizer, whether military forces are prepared to achieve a long list of foreseeable missions, is how do you define the metrics of effectiveness? What is the acceptable cost in achieving the objective in urban combat? Right, That is a super important question. And to some degree, I think you're asking two distinct things between measure of effectiveness and acceptable cost. I can see how you lump those two together. And at the essence of it, it's about the value of the political object. To what degree do our political leaders want to achieve the political objective that that battle or campaign is being fought for? And that will absolutely color the way that we view the costs and and what effective ends up looking like. Um, It was absolutely clear in April of 2004 that the political leaders had not thought through the political costs when they established a political objective very hastily after the U.S. contractors being mutilated in the city of Fallujah. It was a hasty decision to commit the forces, and they did not have the real value of the political object in mind. Contrast that with the approach that the political leaders took in the lead-up to the November 2004 operation. Very deliberate, very methodical laying of the political reasoning for the battle and the campaign. And they didn't waver in that throughout the, you know, approximately 30 days of that battle. They're just, they're very interesting contrasts. So it's um, fighting in urban terrain always takes on unique political implications, especially in this contemporary age in which information is developed and disseminated so rapidly. Uh, We should anticipate that our operations in cities will have near instantaneous global strategic effects. We have to be prepared to deal with that. Yeah, no, I think this is important. One is a measure of military effectiveness, usually viewed in well, let's say war games, you know, an attacking force on a defending force, most of the time, the metrics that I've seen will be heavily allotted towards relative combat power analysis. So, you know, how much of enemy casualties, friendly casualties are taken, and then how much do you think that collateral damage, which clearly is going to increase in this environment more so than any other environment, is weighted towards just a military effectiveness assessment. Yeah, so as I was going through this, I could not find a meaningful way to put a measure, a number on who won the battle. I started doing that in my six cases, right? I wanted to be able to show, hey, this is who won. And I'm going to show that based upon the the number of casualties or the amount of equipment damaged or, or something like that. But every time I tried to do that, Again, I go back to this whole point of context matters. And and this is where I think the, you know, the work that's been done by Pete Fever to look at the, our sensitivity to casualties is so illustrative in that, you know, he he showed in his research when we're making progress, if the American people can see the progress in the campaign, then they have a relatively high tolerance for U.S. casualties. But it's when we don't understand what purpose we're incurring casualties for that Americans become more casualty averse. And I think that sort of transfers into our political leadership, right? As long as we're our political leaders clearly understand the purpose for which we're fighting, and that's clear in their minds, I think they'll be willing to incur more costs in order to achieve the political outcome. And in terms of collateral damage, I think the way General Metz framed this for Operation Al-Fajr, Fallujah, November of 2004, with his information operations threshold. And he didn't, he never put a number on it per se, but he was very attuned to what is being said about the operation. 
And he had a very clear personal metric of, hey, the battle is being talked about, things are being said, but if it's below what he labeled his IO threshold, then we're fine. But he had a sense that if the pitch and the volume got to a certain level, then he would have exceeded his IO threshold and he would have had to have changed his approach to the way he was fighting. I think that's one of the, the most helpful ways to try and think through the way that we progress. And I think that you could use that to think about you know, our most recent urban operations in Mosul. The reality is that despite the level of destruction uh, that happened in Mosul, which was extensive, the American people and Europeans by and large accepted it because it happened little bit by little bit. And because the political leaders did a pretty good job of demonstrating that ISIS represented a significant, if not existential threat to the American people and to Europe and to Western ideals, and that we had to bear the cost to destroy them as a caliphate. Yeah, exactly. The conversations that I just continue to have, and especially about that political objective and whether all members, to include the military, have enough information before the battle unfolds to make an estimate of the cost of the operation that's been given. So that's my whole destroying the city to save it. In the midst of the mission planning, I'm sure, like you said, in the Battle of Fallujah or the Battle of Mosul even, if the city had been left besieged for long enough and there are 800,000 civilians within the city, we think that the political leadership is making this cost-benefit analysis, but do they have a full understanding of the extent of collateral damage that will have to happen? Yeah, so the historic record is pretty clear that if you have a determined adversary in a city, there is not a way for a technologically reliant military to be successful in the city if it's not willing to use substantial amounts of firepower to root them out. And, you know, there's important questions about the speed and precision with which we want to use as we are advancing our campaign. U.S. forces supporting their Iraqi partners in Mosul fought with great deliberation and great precision attacking target by individual target by individual target. Uh, the net effect was a pretty substantial reduction of the city. By all measures, that city was absolutely destroyed and the livelihood of its inhabitants was wrecked. Right? I think the moral responsibility for that clearly falls on ISIS, but the net effect of the combat was quite horrendous. Yeah, for sure. So I know you took on a very specific question about the great equalizer in urban combat. So what was your conclusion after your analysis of those six case studies? Yeah, my conclusion is that a military that wants to rely on technological capability as its source of asymmetric advantage can effectively use those capabilities when it's fighting in a city. Now, that's only going to happen if they have the political will as we've already talked about. It also only happens if they commit the deliberate planning and preparation time that is necessary. Urban battles should not be fought hastily. They deserve to be well thought out in great detail. Not that you can script every engagement that's going to happen, but the resourcing is extensive. And so you, you want to make sure that you've committed real deliberate planning time. But if you have that real deliberate planning time and you have the political will to see the campaign through, the urban terrain itself will not strip away technological advantages and force us to fight mono e mono fights. We can use our technology as our source of asymmetric advantage, even when fighting in a city. Got it. Now, if you don't mind, I'll push you a little bit. Will it degrade the technological advantages of an attacking force? So there might be some degradation, right? Will unintended things happen when fighting in a city? Absolutely. So the complexity of urban terrain challenges our ability to predict what the ultimate outcome of any one military engagement is going to be. The ripple effects in a city of any unique engagement tend to be 
broader and wider ripples? Will we experience moments in which it takes us longer to get our technological capability to bear? Uh, Will some of our precise weapons miss their targets? Yes. So those things absolutely can happen. My caution would be, don't look at any one of those instances and then try and hit the easy button that says urban combat's a great equalizer. Yeah, I was actually unaware of the many times that you were able to find in history that says it's the great equalizer. What I usually say is how much it degrades current military thought in the approach to warfighting. And there are many reasons to that. One of them is just, it's too hard to replicate this environment. So how can you test your systems your belief in your systems and the way you're going to fight when it's really hard to replicate the complexity and density of this environment to test those technologies. Yeah, so I think that's fair. Uh, I agree with that point. And I think studying our experience in Fallujah in November 2004 is really illustrative. The campaign, the battle was not executed precisely as planned, and we had to learn while we were fighting. If you read the company commander's AARs from Fallujah and platoon leader AARs and and some platoon sergeant interviews as well, you'll sort of hear this tenor of, you know, the first 24, 48 hours as we were advancing into the city, we got in these tremendous firefights where three or four insurgents on the second or third floor had a position of advantage over us. And these four insurgents tied down our platoon for a six or eight hour firefight uh, while we had to maneuver to be able to eliminate them. But then after two or three days of fighting that way, we quit and we realized that every time we came across a determined insurgent force, we would fix them in place. We would back away. We would call and coordinate for superior firepower and we would allow our superior firepower to eliminate the target. And what was turning into six and eight hour firefights turned into a two to three hour coordination exercise with a fraction of the casualties on the U.S. side. That's a real important point. It applies to some of my research about the entering clear room urban combat training. And if you look at historical case studies of the type of fighting we're talking about is how fast that that does not become the most dominant tactic of the battlefield. And that's what I got from reading the Fallujah platoon level operations is that they stopped stacking on the outside of doors and attempting to breach into enemy held fortifications and just backed off and either called up tank Bradley or fire mission. Right. So the other thing that you, if you read Battalion Commander AARs from Aachen, you'll read the most important lesson that we learned was stay off the streets, blow holes in the walls to walk through the buildings. You learn the exact same thing from AARs out of Brest. We learned very quickly, get off the street, blow holes in the walls. Read the Battalion Commander AARs from Way, And the Battalion Commanders say the most important thing we learned was to get off the streets, blow holes holes in the walls and walk through the buildings. So if you think you're going to fight in urban combat, learning how to maneuver down the street to do a four-man stack and breach through the front door is not the tactic that's going to see you through to success. I think that's huge. I honestly don't understand, especially as a 25-year infantryman, to include fighting in Baghdad, multiple cities in Iraq, is how much that was ingrained in me based on years of training that that was the tactic that would lead to the most success, not understanding the history of that tactic. And as I go out and I actually visit large-scale urban combat training to this day, that infantry combined arms maneuver formations, when they start to get into the city, you know, they've done their combined arms breach. That's their plan of attack is to maneuver house to house, stacking on each door, not even the windows, on each door and entering, clearing methodically through the entire training area. Well, this just goes back to your point about it being so hard to train for urban combat, right? So if if you're going to train for urban combat, like we're going to fight urban combat, you are going to destroy the training facility. Because when you fight in a city, you end up destroying whatever part of the city you're fighting in. 
And it's, you know, it's just a hard reality. And, you know, maybe we're going to make some super significant advances with virtual reality and that we'll be able to find ways to train some of these issues using new technological capabilities. But this is part of why I just believe so strongly in our professional responsibility to read military history. There is good military history out there. And the corollary to this is we need to be writing our own military history. As we are coming out of operations, we need to be recording for ourselves and for posterity what we learned, which means we have to be honest about the mistakes that we made. We learn when we make mistakes and we have a professional obligation to record our mistakes for ourselves and for posterity so that future military professionals can be better at it. Yeah, for sure. Back to the training thing. That's one that really frustrates me now is not only from personal experience, but from reading our own history, how frustrated I get at our training methodologies, not just because of how hard it is, but literally training reinforces thinking and our thinking is continuing to beget bad training where if we really thought we were going to do this operation in the future, we would adapt our training environments to allow us to start to simulate and show us that our training, our theory of the way that this fight is going to happen has not and will not unfold like that. But I've never seen a building, yes, you can't destroy it, but a building outfitted so that it can simulate the effects of combat, i.e. an artillery round coming down on a building and then a mile's inside the building shoots off lasers and kills things inside the building. Yeah, right. I mean, these are important technological things for us to wrestle with. What, what's our training methodology going to be? And Right. So since, since Mogadishu, really, um, if not before that, the after actions reviews and the, you know, the RAND reports and all this says we must invest in virtual simulations so that we can replicate I don't think it's that hard that we can't replicate this combat to the point that we need to wait for technology to be able to build us a virtual environment and then put soldiers in that virtual environment so they can experience it. One, I think that's decades in the, in the future to create a holodex that really simulates this. And two, it's not that hard. It shouldn't be. This is, you know, a little outside my expertise, but the principle that you're advocating that you're arguing for, I agree with. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the case studies then. One of the questions I have, which you talked about just a minute ago, about a possible reluctance for American casualties, especially if the American society doesn't understand the objectives. In these case studies or in urban combat in general, would you say that a reluctance to take your own casualties will increase your use of firepower? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to make. I think there's pretty compelling historic evidence. So, you know, historically, we can look at the Battle of Wei you know, during the Vietnam War. For the first couple of weeks, there was a high degree of reluctance to use firepower. But as casualties, U.S. casualties increased, U.S. commanders changed their guidance. Same thing can be said about Manila. When MacArthur was headed into Manila, he was very adamant that we would not use firepower as our go-to approach. But by the end of that battle, uh, we had gotten the Japanese defenders into about a quarter square mile of the old city. And we did something like a 72-hour bombardment of that quarter square mile with 7,000 rounds of artillery in order to finish that battle. So I think I would phrase it differently than you. I mean, there is a trade-off between firepower and friendly casualties. So interestingly, you know, Stalingrad, the Germans had no reluctance in using firepower in Stalingrad. Although interestingly, the Russians had no reluctance in using firepower in Stalingrad either. Um, but the Germans got very little in terms of gains for their use of firepower in Stalingrad. The only reason I bring it up, you know, the enter and clear methodical clearing approach falls back against a heav you know, heavily defended fortified positions to where other capabilities must be used. I disagree with somebody that may say that the extensive use of firepower isn't necessary in these type of city clearing, city liberating operations. Yeah. So I would, and again, I would just say, I agree with you. I would phrase it differently. 
if you're fighting against a determined adversary who is determined to stay in the city and hold the city, whatever piece of it, you will need to use firepower as one of your tools to defeat that determined adversary. One of the things I believe to be true about urban combat is that the urban terrain amplifies the advantages of the defense. We all believe that the defense is the stronger form of warfare. That's why from our pre-commissioning days, we learn you need a three-to-one ratio of the attacking force over the defending force. The defense is the stronger form of warfare. If you're going to fight in a city, the city amplifies the advantages of the defense, makes you a more capable defending force. If you view yourself as the weaker force, you have lots of incentives to go into the city to establish your defense. You have good access to fortifications. You can find the right positions of advantage where you have good observation over your adversary whole host of reasons why it makes sense to defend in a city. So if you are facing a determined defender in a city, you need to be prepared for extensive uses of firepower. Okay. So there's one quote in your dissertation. In this quote, I'll actually read it because it's fascinating to me. You said, the post-industrial militaries with technologically sophisticated militaries can implement the organizational and doctrinal changes necessary to exploit their advantages in precision weapons, surveillance, and communication to defeat inferior forces in cities. So what exact organizational and doctrinal changes are you talking about? So I think of many different militaries would want to do that differently. So I'm not trying to be prescriptive, but imagining that you know we have mostly a U.S. audience The first organizational change that I think is absolutely essential is that we are prepared to conduct a decentralized fight with combined arms down to the lowest possible echelon. So the historic record is pretty clear of the advantages of combined arms formations when fighting in a city. We have to be able to fight decentralized. We have to be able to distribute our formation across a city widely and accept the fact that we're not going to have a perfectly linear front line of troops and that we're going to have some forces that are up on the third floor and other forces that are up on the fifth floor and others that are walking across roofs while others are maneuvering in a subterranean infrastructure. And dealing with that complexity is a challenge. And so our doctrine and our organizational structure needs to support that sort of decentralized fight with combined arms at the lowest possible echelon. Um, so I won't let you off the hook, though, because I know that, that was a broad question, right? For what militaries can do to better exploit their own advantages. Let's be more specific about technology, since that is, it seems to be a major investment in the U.S. Army today. Modernization priorities are mostly technologically centered, you know, precision-guided munitions, robotics, autonomy. What are the right technological investments for advanced militaries to make to prepare for urban combat? Hey, so three come to mind. The first one is our ability to visualize and imagine the battlefield. So to think about urban combat is to think in three dimensions. And so if you are planning on a two-dimensional map sheet Uh, you will not be thinking about your urban operation correctly. If you don't have a way to visualize the multiple stories above the ground and the multiple stories below the ground and the necessity of maneuvering vertically as well as horizontally across the land, then you're not going to be imagining the battle correctly. And this has implications for how we conduct targeting as well. So if your battalion is getting ready to conduct an urban operation and there's not a way of depicting a three-dimensional image of the terrain you're going to be operating on, I think you're at a distinct disadvantage. The second thing is, I think the current efforts in artificial intelligence to improve the way that we can process the data 
that we're collecting. To understand urban terrain is to have to be able to make judgments about an immense amount of data. And I think artificial intelligence is going to play a role in helping us do that. And then the third is this idea of redefining precision. So, you know, when we say we have a precise weapon now, we're talking almost always about circular error probable. Will I hit within what radius of the target that I'm aiming at? But we need precision to also mean how far into the building or down underneath the surface of the earth am I going to achieve my effect? And then we also want to be able to to have a more precise effect, not just in terms of location, but I'm imagining that we're using, that we're able to engineer the weapon, the munition as it's leaving its platform to moderate how much of explosive capacity that munition is going to have so that we can get very precise with the effects that we're achieving, not just in terms of circular error probable. Yeah, I think that's the one that jumped out at me on your recommendations about this technology question is where you say developing munitions with such precise penetrating and blast capabilities is likely an expensive undertaking. So a priority could be, but the long-term cost savings of using fewer munitions could be substantial. I think so. So I have a different spin. So one of my highest priorities is concrete penetration. And that's just based on when you cannot affect the defender inside his fortification that causes you have to rely on other capabilities. So if I don't have a capability to, to place effects on somebody inside of a building, then I have to start going through my capabilities portfolio on what can penetrate. So I got to back off and then use those because I don't have that many at the, especially the small unit level, concrete penetrating munitions. And I think your research showed that how that has evolved across time from everywhere from bringing up a artillery, you know, 155 or 105 piece and direct firing it into a building or just leveling the building with aerial munitions. Yeah, I won't argue with you. That's sound logic. Yeah, so I just I would just say concrete penetration as what I would like to be invested in from even at the small arms range. Concur. All right, sir. I mean, I think we could keep going for a long time. I think your research will have a huge impact on disputing some of the myths that are out there. John, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.